the following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. This morning we look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. We sort of uh, read them last week and then uh, launched into a what amounted to uh, an entire sermon on, on the background to this text in Zechari- from Zechariah chapter 14. So I want this morning to read the text again and then work our way through the details of what James has to say to us this morning in chapter 5. James writes these words beginning in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. For behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come, Lord, with excitement and yet trembling as we approach your holy word. For we know in simply the reading of the words that we've just read, you speak to us. For these are not just any words, they're not man's words, they're your words. And so they carry weight in our midst. They carry weight in our lives. They demand and deserve our attention this morning. And so we pray, oh God, as we look to these words of yours this morning, that you'd open our hearts to hear your voice. That you would, Lord, enlighten our minds to understand that you would captivate our will, that we would be inclined to obey. And that you would point us this morning to your Son, Jesus, in whom all things just make sense. This is your word. This is your moment. Speak to us. We listen. For Christ's sake. Amen. I just flew back in last night from a week of military service in Seattle, where it was nice and cool all week, and I came back to balmy Charleston, but I'm glad to be back and to be with you this morning. That flight gives you a lot of time uh, to sit in a little tiny seat and to find something to occupy your mind, and I uh, often will put headphones on and just listen to music. This week I had uh, just put my headphones on and launched iTunes and put it on random. So when you just kind of put it on random or whatever that little button is, it just pulls whatever song out of your, out of your library and starts playing it. And uh, one of the songs that popped up this week was uh, a song that contains great wisdom uh, from, from great, uh, 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 well, we'll just say from the wise men of the, uh, of the country western group, Alabama. It's a song called, I'm in a hurry. Do you know that song? I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and rush until life's no fun. 
All I got to do is live and die. I'm in a hurry, and I don't know why. I find that to be such common wisdom, but so true of my life on so many days. Do you find yourself living that way, that from day to day you just find yourself in a hurry? How many people understand what it's like to be in a hurry on a regular basis? Just raise your hand so I don't feel so alone up here. Okay. You know what it's like to be in a hurry, to feel like you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground and you launch out into the day and it's like you've raced from one thing to the next to the next and the next thing you know that it's nighttime and uh, you're making your checklist for the next day of things that you need to hurry off and do. Life moves at a at a rapid pace for, I think, all of us. And we live in a world where everything is just fast and getting faster. And so it's hard for us to be patient. And if there's anything that people in a hurry dislike, despise, hate, it's to be made to wait. Right? Come on, let's be honest for a moment. How many of you enjoy waiting? How many of us enjoy pulling on to I-26 or I-526 only to see cars lined up as long as you can see and just realize, I'm going to be here for a while, just waiting? How many of you like to to walk into the DMV to uh, renew your driver's license only to find 5,000 other people sitting there just waiting? And you know this is going to be an all-day affair. We don't like it. How many of you like to go order in a restaurant and sit down and have 10, 15 minutes pass by, 20 minutes, and you're wondering, where in the world is my food? I'm starving. We don't like to wait. We hate to wait. We want to do everything we can do as fast as humanly possible. And any delay, any impediment, anything that causes us to not be able to move at the pace we think we ought to move causes almost an immediate sort of a backlash in our minds and in our hearts. We live in a very busy world and we live very busy lives and waiting is not our thing. When you couple that with the sort of culture in which we live where... We've sort of been indoctrinated, at least for a couple of generations now, in a sort of a worldview that revolves around self-esteem and self-actualization and self-pleasure. Where we're taught that really the whole world revolves around us and our own happiness and our own uh, feeling good. So that the highest virtue that, that we're taught to pursue on any given day is our own pleasure, our own satisfaction, and the pursuit of feeling good. That shapes us. That shapes the way we think. So we're in a hurry and we're taught that the whole world revolves around and the highest pursuit of our lives ought to be our own happiness and our own feeling good. And so therefore, if something happens in our lives that doesn't make us happy and doesn't cause us to feel good, we feel like we need to make a change pretty quickly. As quickly as possible. If my car doesn't make me happy anymore, if it doesn't make me feel good, I get rid of the car. And I go get a new one that makes me happy, that makes me feel good. If my marriage isn't making me happy anymore and it's no longer feeling the way it used to feel, then there's an easy solution to that. I just get out of the marriage and I I go find some other partner that can make me happy and make me feel good. The job doesn't make me happy anymore. If it doesn't make me feel good, if it doesn't satisfy me, if it doesn't fill up whatever, uh, whatever sort of um, self-needs I perceive that I have, then, you, then we just get to get a new job and 
find something else to do. If a church doesn't make me happy anymore, if it no longer makes me feel good, then what do we do? Well, the, the simple answer is we just get, you leave the church and you go find some other church somewhere that makes you happy and makes you feel good. This is the way that we're taught to think, and it's the culture in which we live in. We're always in a hurry, and our hurrying pursuits are are largely geared at our own happiness and our own feeling good. And so if something doesn't make us happy, if it doesn't make us feel good, then we're in a hurry to make a quick change. And in the mix of all of that, we hate to wait for anything. I read some statistics this week. Um about how long you and I are willing to wait in front of a computer screen for a website to load. How many of you love that? You click on the button and you just see the little thing that spins for a while. How long does it take before you start getting a little bit agitated? I know how long it takes before you get a little bit agitated. Do you want to know how long it takes? I can remember when we had dial-up modems. Do you remember that? You heard that, whatever that noise was, and you had to sit there and wait, you know, for your computer to actually connect to the Internet, and then it took three minutes for a picture to download or whatever. Now we expect to click a button and everything to happen instantly, and any delay causes frustration. Uh, An organization called Kissmetrics did some, some studies and some surveys just a couple of years ago, and they found this. 47% of visitors to a website expect the site to load in two seconds. Two seconds. And get this. If you're a web designer, this is important for you. If it takes longer than three seconds to load, 40% of the people will leave and never wait for your website to load. They found also that if you own a business and you have a website, if your website loads slower than your competitor's website, people will go to your competitor and purchase their products instead of yours. You say, well, how much slower can my website be than my competitor in order for people to stay and buy from me instead of from them? Do you want to know the answer to that question? 250 milliseconds. 250 milliseconds. Harry Shun of Microsoft said this, 250 milliseconds, either slower or faster, is close to the magic number now for competitive advantage on the web. 250 milliseconds. If you don't know how long that is, the blink of an eye takes 300 to 400 milliseconds. So literally, if your website is the blink of an eye slower than your competitor, you're going to lose business. Why is that? Because the dude like me on the other side of the computer does not want to wait the blink of an eye for your website to load. I'll go there and buy my business because it's faster. Arvin Jane of Google says this, Subconsciously, you don't like to wait. Every millisecond matters. That's fascinating, isn't it? To think absolutely how unwilling we are to wait on anything. And it's really, it's really sort of striking when you sort of overlay that with how many times the Word of God calls God's people to wait. We have been set up by the culture that indoctrinates us from the time we're born to run sideways against God's Word in this area of our lives. We've been pre-programmed to resist the Word of God in this area and in a bad way. 
When we looked at James chapter 5, James is talking to his people, the people initially to whom we're reading his letter, but to us by virtue of time, about the issue of how do we endure suffering in a way that honors God? How is it that Christians should, should navigate into, through, and out of seasons of suffering and pain and hardship and trial in such a way that Christ is honored and God is glorified in our lives and in the way we live? And the key piece to the whole thing James is going to tell us is be patient and to wait. Now, I understand because I live in the culture you live in how offensive that advice is to my ear. Wait? I hate to wait. I don't want to wait. But God says to wait. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. As we look at James chapter 5, this, this section of verses 7 through 11, sort of the way it unfolds is, is, is interesting. And we noted last week that uh, sort of one of the key features that flows throughout this text is James is calling his people to wait in the midst of suffering, but not sort of a, an ignorant sort of a waiting that has no objective or goal, but the waiting is based on an event that is yet to come. It is, he's calling them to wait and to be patient because something is going to happen. And that something that's going to happen is Christ is going to return. That becomes sort of the foundational piece to the waiting he's going to call us to. He's going to tell us we can suffer with patience because we understand that Christ is going to return. The Lord is going to come back. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He talks about the judge being literally at the door, ready to walk through. And so he lays for us sort of this foundation. The way we've sort of laid out this text for us to look at is we've looked at sort of the, the foundation of godly suffering or the, the foundation for a godly response in suffering and then sort of some characteristics for the how-to of going through the actual suffering. But we have to get the foundation before we get to the how-to. Otherwise, the how-to will fall flat and we'll never do it. The first piece to the foundation we saw in our whole sermon last week. Christ is coming back. That is the first foundation. We can resist the temptation to, to grumble and complain and fight and lash out at other people. We can resist the temptation to, to take vengeance on other people when they're the cause of our suffering. We can, take, uh, we can resist the temptation to become uh, a sort of hopeless and, and, and to sort of spiral down into depression, thinking that our pain will never go away because Christ is going to return and there will be an end to the suffering. We can, we can resist the temptation to try and make all things right in our own strength and our own power because Christ is going to return and He is the judge who will make all things completely and perfectly right in His time and in His way and He'll do a better job than we ever could. We'll resist the temptation to blame other people for our pain. Because He is the judge, the righteous judge, who has all the facts. And when He returns, He'll judge righteously. We usually don't have all the facts and our judgments are skewed. And so that first foundational piece to navigating suffering in a way that honors God is lifting our eyes from the immediate circumstances and looking forward in history and focusing our sights on the fact that Jesus is coming back. Christ is coming back. 
When suffering comes into my life, one of the first things I need to train myself to think is, Christ is going to return, and this is going to end. Christ is going to return, and this is going to be made right. Christ is going to return, and He understands all things. He knows all things, and He does all things well. This isn't in my control. I don't have to manage this by myself. I can wait. But there's a second foundational piece to to navigating sort of suffering in a way that honors God. And that's this. It's not just that Christ is returning, but it's that God has a purpose in our suffering. And, and really, back in chapter 1 of James, he introduced us this, to this issue right at the very beginning. And so we could sort of look at this as uh, sort of the back end of a bracket that begins back in chapter 1. Uh, you may recall that in the very, right after the greeting, in verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials, troubles, difficulties, temptations, suffering, all of that falls underneath trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking absolutely nothing. More often than not, in a particular moment, when suffering comes our way, we don't understand the purpose for which it has come. Is that fair to say? Have you experienced that in your life? You're you're just going about your your normal everyday life and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you haven't asked for it, you didn't want it, but suffering invades your life and your experience. And it's there and you're in the middle of it and you find yourself wondering, what in the world is the purpose of this? Why am I having to suffer like this? Why is this happening to me? More often than not, we don't have any idea at the particular moment why it's happening. Sometimes, in retrospect, on the other side, we can look back and begin to see the purpose. But not always. Not always. Many seasons of our suffering, we never find out the purpose. In this life, at least. But the reality is we don't need to know the purpose. We simply need to know that God has a purpose. And that's what James is laying out in that first part of chapter 1. He's simply telling us this, look, count it all joy when you go through trials of all these different kinds. When you do it, you can be joyful in the mix of it. You can go through the pain. You can go through the suffering with a a sort of a, a, a deep and residing joy in your heart. Because you understand that this isn't random, that that life circumstances are not out of control, that in fact what's coming into your life is perfectly and completely under the sovereignty of God. And not only that, but God has brought it into your life for a purpose. You may not know the particular purpose for the moment, but in general, there are two purposes. Initially, the purpose of suffering is always, James says, to teach us patience or steadfastness or endurance. Count it all joy when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your face produces steadfastness or patience or endurance. So I know that. Every time suffering comes into my life, there is a purpose. There are particular purposes, but the general purpose, at least, is always for God to teach me patience, to teach me how to wait, to teach me to be steadfast when, when things are out of my control. Initially, suffering always is intended to teach us patience. But James tells us, furthermore, it's not just patience that God is after. He's ultimately after something else, and that's maturity. Right? Did you catch that? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance, and when that's had its perfect way, or when that's run its course, He makes you perfect and complete. That's another way of saying mature and not lacking anything. 
So God's purpose in our suffering is initially always suffer, is always patience, and it is always ultimately maturity. That's what James is arguing in the first section of chapter one. And it's important for us to capture that if we're going to navigate suffering in a way that honors God. God is teaching me something. This has a purpose. God's trying to teach me to be patient. And God is making me mature. And this is the tool in His toolbox for shaping me in those ways. We could summarize that by saying this. Trials, troubles, suffering, pain are the primary tools God uses to build into us patience and ultimately maturity. There is no way to learn patience apart from suffering and trials and trouble. Circumstances that force us into positions where we can do nothing but but wait. There is no other way to Christian maturity. There is no other pathway to Christian maturity other than the pathway that leads through suffering and trials and trouble. If you think you're going to become a mature believer and somehow avoid suffering, pain, trouble, and trials, you're fooling yourselves. Because it's in, it's in the fire of those things that God refines us. And He makes us mature. And He teaches us to wait. And so the return of Christ, the focus of our eyes, becomes a foundation for how to suffer well. And the reality and the understanding and the reminding of ourselves that this isn't random, it isn't out of control, but God has brought this into my life and He has a purpose which He may or may not disclose in particular to me now or any time for, for that matter. But at least I can say this, He's teaching me patience and He's trying to make me mature. And this is a necessary part of it. And then thirdly, James gives us another sort of foundational piece to being able to navigate well. And that's this. He tells us that Christ is merciful and compassionate. Do you see that? Christ is merciful and He's compassionate. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's not uncommon for people who are going through a season of suffering to begin to wonder, does God really care about me? Does God really love me? Is God really good? And we start to wrestle with this sort of our theology of God because we, it's hard for us to, to sort of rationalize God's mercy and compassion and goodness with the pain that we're dealing with at any particular moment. And it's not uncommon when the pain is, is, is high and the suffering is strong and the trial endures for long periods of time to begin to, in our minds, say, God, I wonder, I wonder if, if you really are good. I wonder if you really are merciful and compassionate because right now it sure doesn't seem so. We can begin to envision God as being angry and vengeful. And certainly, God displays those characteristics at times in response to human sin. But if you look through your, your Old and New Testament and see how many times God is described as merciful and compassionate, you'll be amazed. The Lord, merciful and compassionate, 
Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, you may recall Moses interacting with God. Moses is saying, God, I want to see your glory. I want you to show me your glory. And God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to allow my glory to pass by you. In the mix of that conversation and the events that ensued thereafter, Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6 tells us this. The Lord descended in a cloud and He stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, say that with me, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God chose to allow His glory to pass by Moses, what was the overriding message about His character that He wanted to deliver and Moses to capture? I'm the Lord. And you need to know, Moses, that I am the Lord, merciful and compassionate. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and so on and so forth. Abounding in love, forgiving iniquity. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, the second part. But you are a God ready to forgive. You're gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 103, 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This was the characteristic of God that so infuriated Jonah. Do you remember that? Do you remember the story of Jonah, the reluctant prophet? You know, God tells him to go this way and go preach to the Ninevites, the people whom he hates, so he goes the other way. God has to hurl a storm at him to capture his attention and get him swallowed by a fish, spit back out, and all this drama just to get the guy going in the right direction. And after all the pain and drama that happens in his life, he eventually goes the right way and goes to Nineveh to preach. But if you read the the narrative of Jonah, you find that, I mean, he is just the most reluctant preacher that's ever preached a sermon, ever. I mean, he's going against his will. And he goes to Nineveh, this city of people that he despises. And the problem is Jonah hates these people and he wants God's vengeance and judgment to fall and to obliterate them because in his mind, these are the enemies of God. And therefore, his enemies. And so after all this chiding and all of this work, he goes to Nineveh. And he goes to the city and he preaches. And it's the worst evangelistic missionary sermon you've ever heard. I mean, just see him kind of mumbling through the city 40 days and Nineveh is overthrown. I mean, he's doing this because he has to. And what happens? The people... Believe God. That's what the text tells us. The people believe the Lord and they repent all the way up to the king of Nineveh. I mean, they're, they're putting on the sackcloth and they're, they're repenting before the Lord. And Jonah is just incensed. Because all this whole city of people repents and turns to the Lord. He's livid. He's livid. And God withholds the wrath. And here's what Jonah says in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. How do you like this prayer? Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Lord, I told you you were going to do this. This is why I made haste to go to Tarshish. This is why I didn't obey you, God. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. 
Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. God, I, it's just like you to do this. It is just like you to do this. To be gracious and merciful to these evil people and to relent from destroying them. He's livid because God is a merciful and gracious God who refuses to destroy his enemies. James uses a word for compassion here that literally means many bowled. That's fascinating, isn't it? Many bowled. First century mind and, and sort of way of thinking uh, sort of saw the bowels or the stomach, if you will, as the seat of emotions. You get this idea. You know, when you have strong emotions, you usually feel it where? Yeah, somewhere in that area, right? You get nervous, you get butterflies in your stomach, right? Or whatever. You understand. But the meaning literally is here. The, the, when he says that God is many bowels, he means compassion. It means God has this enormous capacity for compassion. That's really what he's communicating here. Listen, when you and I go through suffering, James wants us to understand, number one, Christ is going to return and make all things right. Number two, this suffering has a purpose, initially, initially patience, ultimately maturity, and particularly probably other things. And beyond that, we need to know, going in, God is merciful and He's compassionate. God has not brought this into my life to, to destroy me. He's brought it into my life for good. God is not intending to wreck me. He's in, intending good things for my life. God is not is coming at me as angry and venge, vengeful. God is merciful and He's compassionate. And He will bring this to an end. His mercy will return. And He will show compassion to me once again. And of course, His mercy and compassion has never been more vivid than at the cross where Christ, the Son of God, died in our place. Paul writes of that in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He's made us alive together with Christ. So God's merciful. He's gracious. He has a purpose for our suffering He'll one day end all the suffering and judge sin when He sends His Son back as warrior and judge. In order to suffer in a way that honors the Lord, we have to understand those things and we have to preach that message to ourselves over and over and over again before, during, and after the suffering comes. It's only then, it's only when we stand on the platform of those truths that the characteristics that James gives us will even be possible for us to live out. And I just want to sort of quickly point those out. Because he tells us there's really three things to do. Three things to do. Actually, two things to do and one thing not to do. The first thing he tells us in verse 7, be patient. Be patient. The thing we hate the most, right? Be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And it goes down further. You also, be patient. Be patient. So the first thing to do when suffering comes, when we stand on the, the sort of the foundation of those truths that we just sort of recited to each other, the first thing to then do in light of those things is to walk into our trials with an attitude that says, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be willing to wait. found a poem this week it says this patience is a virtue possess it if you can 
found seldom in a woman and never in a man. It's probably true. What is this patience that he's talking about? It's this spiritual quality of waiting under duress. It's the ability to be patient and to wait under duress. When, when, when there's suffering and when there's pain and when there's challenge and when there's difficulty and when there's hardship, it's the ability to wait. To not in, in sort of a rash way act out. But to wait on the Lord. It's a refusal to sort of lash out, to kick and scream, to take vengeance, to complain. It's the ability to see God and to trust God in the midst of the storm and to just patiently wait for His purposes to unfold. Chuck Swindoll says this, When something unjust takes place, have a long fuse. Don't blow your top. Chill. I like that. I understand that. If you look at the word wait in your Bible, you'll find over 106 times that it tells us to wait. The Word of God, to wait. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be of good courage and He will strengthen your heart. Those who wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. Yet those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Does this sound familiar to you? And so the first principle to do is to wait. And it's fascinating when you make a comparison here of what he tells us in chapter 5 and what he says in verse 2 of chapter 1. Because it gives us the balance of something we need to keep in balance. Do you remember what he told us in that first part of chapter 1? Count it all joy when you face various kinds of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. Okay? So, trials produce in us patience. So what do I do when I go through a trial, James says? Be patient. Now that's confusing, isn't it? That the suffering builds patience. God is doing something in me through the suffering. He's, he's building in me patience. So what am I supposed to do when the suffering comes? Be patient. If we don't understand something of the balance of what the Scriptures teach us, that's not going to make much sense. How can I be patient when it's the trouble that's teaching me how to be patient? It's another example of where the Word of God holds in balance two things that are critical. The sovereignty of God and human effort. When we get uh, sort of out of balance one way or the other, then we get confused and mixed up in all sorts of ways. Yes, it is the sovereignty of God that brings suffering into our lives. And yes, God is sovereignly from the inside of us, teaching us and building up in us patience as we work through that. But at the end of the day, when we go through it, the call to our lives is to act and to actually do something. And the activity and the doing is to be patient. God is building in us sovereignly patience, but we are responsible to choose to act on the patience that we have. God is at work in us, and we're called to work out our salvation at the same time. Trials bring into our lives patience, and we are called to then exercise patience. But this patience is not just sort of a passive waiting. It's not a passive waiting. This is not the, the sort of patience that says, well, I'm just going to sit back and let go and let God just do whatever while I drink my sweet tea and eat some bonbons. 
No. This is an active sort of awaiting. It's not a, a passive sort of awaiting where we sort of sit around and mope and feel sorry for ourselves, wallowing in our suffering. We don't just sit around and, and complain and gripe and try to generate sympathy from other people. It's not that kind of waiting that he's talking about. It's an active sort of a waiting. It's a waiting that's characterized by actively working on the things that are within our control and releasing the things that are beyond our control. And James uses a great illustration to make the point. He says, take a look at the farmer in the field. They all understood farming. We don't all understand farming. I venture to say there's no farmers among us. But we at least have some concept of farming. James's listeners would have understood this clearly. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? Farmers were hardworking people. It takes a lot of work to bring in a harvest. You don't just sit around in the farmhouse and say, man, I hope God brings a harvest this year. You do that, and you'll be waiting a long time. No, the farmer works, doesn't he? He works. He gets out there, and he prepares the soil, and he gets out there, and he casts his seed, and he, and he takes care of the ground, and he manages all of the circumstances that are within his control. He prepares the soil. He, he plants the seed. He protects the, 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 the farmland. He, he keeps out weeds and critters and all those things that can invade. But then once he's done what he can do, he can only do so much. Because for that crop to ever grow, God must supply the rain. And in Palestine, there were early rains and late rains. And that was the only rain. There were these little six-week periods of rain between dry times. And so you can imagine the farmer who's planting all of his stuff. He's, he's done all he can do. And every day he's waking up and he's pulling back the shades in the house. And he's looking out at the sky and he's wondering, is it going to rain today? Are my crops going to have rain? Are they going to grow? And then after the early rains, as those things are growing, he knows that if the late rains don't come, then his crop is going to be ruined and he's going to have no food. And so it's all a big waiting game, isn't it? But it's an active waiting. It's a waiting that he does what he can do, and then he releases the part that's out of his control, which is the rain. And he waits for the Lord to bring the rain. And he waits. There's no way in first century Palestine to make that faster. In our day, we can irrigate, we can sprinkle, we can do all kinds of things. But they couldn't. They had to wait for the rain. And there's no way to speed it up. You have no choice but to do what? You just wait. And James says, see, that's what I'm talking about. It's not a passive waiting where we sit around and mope and whine and complain and gripe, lash out at everybody, try to generate sympathy. It's a waiting where we get out there and we do the work that the Lord has set before us and we wait patiently for the rain to come. And He'll bring the rain when He's, when he's ready. And so we wait. We wait. Second thing he says is in verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts. So be patient and establish your hearts. This idea of establish your heart it means to strengthen, to support, to prop up. And it conveys the idea of staying the course, not getting knocked down. It's the idea that when suffering and pain comes into my life, that I'm to go into this with an attitude of patience, and then secondarily, my goal is to, to hang in there and to stay the course and to keep faithfulness to the Lord no matter what comes. Just decide that I'm going to go through and I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to get knocked down and I'm not going to quit. I'm going to trust the Lord to the end. You, you may have heard of a man by the name of Charles Simeon before. We've quoted him often around here. 
But Charles Simeon was a pastor at Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 49 years. Actually, it was a little longer than 49 years. When he was assigned the church and took over the church, the church didn't want him to be the pastor. They wanted another guy to be the pastor. And the bishop assigned Simeon to the church. They wanted this guy who was an assistant curate by the name of Mr. Hammond. And Simeon was willing to step down if need be, but the bishop said, no way, you're the man. And you can imagine how that landed on this particular church. They wanted nothing to do with Charles Simeon as their pastor. And they made that vividly clear in many ways for a very long time. The first thing they did was they had control over a second service that happened on Sunday afternoon. And so in that second service, they refused to allow Simeon to be the speaker in the second service. Guess who they invited to be the speaker in the second service? You got it, Mr. Hammond, the guy they really wanted to be their pastor. And so every Sunday, Charles Simeon came to church and he preached on Sunday morning. And Mr. Hammond preached in the afternoon, Roger. How about that? And this went on for five years. When Mr. Hammond left after five years, you'd think that they would at that point turn the, the pulpit over to their pastor. No, they brought in somebody else to do that sermon for another seven years. Can you imagine being the pastor of a church where your own people don't want you to preach in the second service? Hire other people to do it for you because they don't want you? It took 12 years for him to ever stand in the pulpit for the second service on a Sunday. Charles Simeon. He tried in the midst of that to start an even later service on Sunday evening. And it was interesting because many of the townspeople would come, but they had church wardens in those days who controlled the building. And you know what the church wardens would do on the Sunday evening? they just lock the doors so nobody could get in the building. So all the townspeople had to stand outside. Simeon one day got a locksmith to come and unlock the door so they could get in the building. But when it happened again, he just let it go. He never did that again. Another thing that they would do on Sunday mornings is that they would lock the doors to the pews. Have you ever been to First Baptist Church downtown Charleston? Yeah? They had these those old pews that had little doors, wooden doors on the end. Well, people like had ownership of pews, and they had the key to the lock of their pews. So what they would do is they would get together, and they would lock the pews, and they would not show up on Sunday morning. So that all the townspeople who did come had nowhere to sit. And so they had to stand in the aisles and Simeon had to put chairs in the corners and down the side and down the aisles in order for people to sit. And when he would do that, the church wardens would throw the chairs out in the churchyard. There's so much more that could be said about his life in ministry. That's only a little tiny taste of sort of the church-based trouble that Simeon dealt with. For over 50 years, he was the pastor of that church. Never one time did he think about going somewhere else. And at 71 years old, he was asked by uh, another person how he, how he endured all of the trouble and suffering. He had health troubles. He had all sorts of things come his way. Here's what he said. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head Christ 
has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers in the victory. It's beautiful, isn't it? In a world where we're quick to jettison anything that doesn't make us happy to hear a pastor who stays 50 years at a place where there's misery for decades. And to hear him say, you know what? Christ suffered. I can suffer patiently in the assignment he's given me. The last thing James tells us is don't grumble. Don't grumble. Don't grumble against one another. One of the things that happens when we're suffering is we tend to grumble and complain and lash out at people. And James says, don't do that. Don't do that. Listen, nobody has to teach me how to grumble. I'm a master grumbler. I was born into this world a master grumbler. The Holy Spirit has to teach me how not to grumble. Especially when life is hard. And James points us, and we don't have the time this morning to look too deeply into it, so we won't. But he points us to the Old Testament prophets. And he says, look at the Old Testament prophets. Look at how they suffered patiently. And they did. And he points us to Job in the Old Testament. He says, look at Job. You remember the story of Job and all of the suffering that that righteous man endured? Look at him. But since our task this morning as we wrap this message up is to go before the Lord's table... I'm going to choose to point your attention in a different direction. We can look to the prophets, yes. We can look to Job, yes. But we have a better example. We have a better place to look to get a clear definition and vivid color of what it means to suffer patiently. To patiently endure unjust suffering. And that's to look to the cross of Jesus Christ where the Son of God shed His blood took a crown of thorns on his head, a spear in his side, brutal lashing, all completely unjust. And yet he patiently endured that you and I might be saved. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. A couple of verses down. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Listen, my friends, if Christ can patiently endure the suffering He endured for our sins, not His sins, but our sins, we can look to Him and His imminent return, His mercy and compassion, and His great sovereign purposes. And we too can endure patiently the suffering that comes into our life by His grace the help of His Spirit. We can honor Him in how we suffer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we, we wrap up this message on suffering by looking to You on the cross. 
as we think about patient endurance, as we think about what it means to walk in integrity and to maintain our testimony through the fire of life's trouble. We have no greater example than you. The perfectly righteous one. The one who deserved no punishment for sin because you were perfect and complete. Who yet endured the wrath of men, endured the scorn, endured the beating, endured the brutality of the cross. And you did so like a lamb, silent before the shearers. You never lashed out. You didn't complain. You didn't grumble. You patiently endured suffering on our behalf. That our sins might be covered by your blood. That we might be regenerated and made new. Because of you. And so as we approach this table this morning and think about reflect upon and remember your death on the cross. We pray, Lord, that as we take this this meal together, that you would embed in our minds your patient endurance in your death on our behalf. That you might drive us to deep and abiding gratitude to you for what you've done for us. And that your example of patient endurance might drive us and might help us in our moment of suffering. I pray that you would be honored by this meal that we share together today and that you would meet us afresh and anew as we drink the cup and as we take the bread. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. The Bible tells us that Jesus and his disciples gathered, Jesus and his disciples gathered, Jesus and his disciples gathered, Jesus and his disciples gathered.